Hello, and welcome back to the Voices in Japanese Studies podcast. In this episode, Anna and I are delighted to interview Dr. Vicky Young, Kawashima Lecturer in Japanese Literature and Culture at Selwyn College, University of Cambridge. As you will hear during the episode, Dr. Young has followed a fascinating path through the field of Japanese studies. Having received her undergraduate degree in Japanese studies from Cambridge, Dr. Young studied for an MA in Japanese Cultural Studies at Burbank College, University of London. Dr. Young then spent three and a half years as a research student at Waseda University in Tokyo as part of the Institute of um, Ryukyuan and uh, Okinawan Studies. She then received her PhD from the University of Leeds in 2016. Her thesis research focused on works of literature by three writers, um, Sakiyama Tami, I Yangji, and Tawada Yoko. This is also the first episode we have recorded during the COVID era. And this new reality has had an undeniable impact on Japanese studies and academia in general, as it has on all aspects of life. We took a moment at the end of the interview to ask Dr. Young what challenges are facing Japanese studies as we adapt to life post-COVID and whether there might be some opportunities to be found amongst the chaos. We hope that you enjoyed this insight into Dr. Young's career so far and find it inspiring as you consider your own journey in the field of Japanese studies. So um, we are here today um, virtually, and uh, not in the recording booth, with Dr. Vicky Young from the University of Cambridge. And got, just going to start off our, our little uh, chat and interview with her and just jump right into things to see what, what, what has really sparked your interest in Japan and, or, or Japanese. Well, thank you very much, first of all, for inviting me to have this conversation with you. We've already been a bit chattering along and it's been really nice. Um, I really need a cool answer to this question. <laughs> but I was always a bit of a language nerd, I guess. So I wanted to learn other languages before they were introduced in school. So we would, uh, in my hometown, Hexham, Northumberland, um, we, were, we would learn French from the age of nine, but I was already eager to do that sooner. And the BBC used to put these videos and kind of kind of animated packs for children to learn mainly French, German, and Italian, I think would be a Spanish one. Um, so I was I was already kind of interested in learning language and being a bit of a nerdy only child. Um, I've got two half sisters, but they're a bit older. So I, think I was I grew, uh, growing up on my own and I just was really interested in language. But Probably the, the other important part was going to Greece at the age of five and seeing that there was a language which didn't, which had a different writing system. And I just thought this was fascinating. And I can remember thinking, why is a letter A a letter A? And I had a children's encyclopedia with a picture of a kind of cave painting of an ox's head, which then was simplified into an alpha, which turns into a letter A. And I would look at this thinking, that's not an explanation. <laughs> I didn't understand <laughs> why that physical, you know, that writing that um, was pronounced A and then how that turned into words that then had meaning and could be spoken. So 
it was all around that area. Um, why Japanese and not Chinese or indeed any other language that does use a different writing systems? I've got no idea, but I asked my parents at about the age of 10, can I learn Japanese? And we, I grew up in Northumberland near Durham, which had a department. So my dad contacted somebody there. And I, I mean, I don't have the letter anymore to know who on earth my dad contacted. <laughs> but to ask if they had any similar kind of children-oriented um, materials, like what the BBC was putting out for European languages for the study of Japanese. And of course, they didn't back then. So that was it. And I just kind of put it on the shelf and thought, it'll be the kind of thing I'll do at night school when I'm in my 40s. Mm -hmm. And um, and then, uh, but so the so the seed was already planted, but we're not quite sure where from. But it it all stems from language. Mm -hmm. Oh, very interesting. I mean, a lot of us have these kind of conversations of oh, what sparked interest and why did did we end up doing what we're doing? And I I, I think uh, a lot of time the the language aspect of things is kind of underestimated. That how much of a kind of interest that can actually spark because it's just such a different world you dive in when you start learning it um I, I must say for me it was kind of similar similar things I can very much understand kind of like the fascination with like something completely different from from our like writing and even though I, I don't know if you made maybe the, the the same observation but I always found that Japanese grammar is is quite similar to for example like Latin and the way other languages were taught at school. I always thought, oh, this is quite, it, it, it looks different, but it, it makes so much sense uh, grammatically. But yeah, maybe that's you know, just I, an observation yeah. I had. <laughs> yeah, I never studied Latin. So I did, my A-levels were maths, physics, German, and further maths. And I thought I was going to be a maths teacher. And I thought I was going to go to university to do an Erasmus four-year degree. So I do maths with German, or maybe physics with German, but I think I was always, I preferred the maths to the to the physics, um, and you know, and you would do kind of the German alongside, and then go and study maths in a German university for one's third year. And in that, when I was applying to university, I, I kind of had my heart set on going to Cambridge, and they didn't offer this Erasmus program oh. in that way. And then I realised that further maths A level was really hard, <laughs> and. Thought, well, I'll, I'll go back into languages. And, but in order to do modern languages in Cambridge, you had to take a second language. And you couldn't do French ad initio. And I didn't have the A level. And I thought, well, what other language would I do? Kind of flicking through the prospectus and realized that you could do Japanese. And it was ad initio. And it said, it's somewhere in the description that, you know, because of, there were very few schools offering A-level Japanese at that time. So they didn't expect you to have necessarily that kind of specific training, but that students who do well at maths might do well or have in the past done well mm -hmm. in Japanese. And so that kind of gave me the, the courage to, to go ahead and apply for the Japanese. But I actually then was relating with Japanese grammar to mathematical equations. Oh. <laughs> so I, you know, when you have this whole kind of string nominalizing, you know, kind of before and now, I would think of that in terms of kind of bracketed simultaneous equations <laughs> oh. <laughs> and move things around the page in the way that I was moving my mathematical, you know, my sums and stuff, right? So, um, so not quite Latin, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
whatever we latch onto, right? <laughs> Notebooks full of uh, Japanese equations hidden away somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I may, maybe, that, maybe that's what I was doing wrong. Maybe that's why it took me so long sometimes to to master some aspects of the grammar. But that's how I saw it um, more than more than language at first. Your degree then was in modern languages as opposed to say Japanese studies. Oh no, it was in Japanese studies. So even today, it's still in a different faculty. It was the Faculty of Oriental Studies in those days. It's now a Faculty of Asian Middle Eastern Studies. So um, yes, it's always this joke that it's separated in Cambridge from modern and medieval languages and linguistics. Um, we kind of think of our Japanese and Chinese and Arabic and not modern languages, but um, yeah, <laughs> it was a Japanese studies degree. And so um, kind of dwelling then on your undergraduate studies a little bit, what did you find were, were the great benefits of doing a Japanese studies degree? Was uh, an undergraduate degree in Japanese studies what you imagined it to be from the outset when you applied? I'm not sure I fully knew what I was applying to do because I must have made the decision quite suddenly in lower sixth, so what year 12, to switch from this mathematical route into um, a, a Japanese degree. And I remember getting the letters. They, UCAS at the time used to send you your confirmation on these little postcards. It's saying, you know, you're, you know, Victoria Young, you have applied to the University of wherever to study Japanese studies. And I would receive these cards thinking, oh, <laughs> have I? <laughs> um, so it all felt very surreal. Um, that being so slightly, you know, I just, I suppose I walked in thinking, I know that I want to learn this language and I didn't know what other doors would open up through it in terms of the other the content. Um, I hadn't, I, I wasn't confident with history at all. Um, I did geography A level, uh, GCSE rather than history, you had to take one humanities subject in my, in my school. So I realised, I think when I got there, that actually I was going to be doing a lot of, studying a lot of things that I hadn't studied at GCSE, hadn't studied since GCSE or hadn't even studied at GCSE and thinking, gosh, am I going to be cut out for this? And what what actually am I going in for? So I probably didn't research it as well, or, or kind of I was so focused on the language at that time. So how, how did you find it in the end? How, 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 how? Um, tough. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's meant to be tough. Um, I mean, I, I do a lot of outreach now for the faculty and try to, you know, we try to project the fact that it is a real challenge, but actually, you know, it's, it's a really worthwhile challenge at the same time. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, I, I found it fascinating. I think the, the thing with the Cambridge degrees is that we have such short academic terms. So there's eight weeks of teaching, there's eight, eight, four models. So you have eight weeks before Christmas, eight weeks between January and Easter, and then four weeks of teaching after Easter, and then you're straight into exams. Um, so, I mean, I, today is week, week one, day one, and it's, it's that moment at the top of the roller coaster where the brakes come off and you just suddenly are free falling for the next few weeks. So the, the difficulty was really just keeping on top of things. And then you'd go home for the vacation and finally let all of this, this content and these grammatical forms and you know, verb endings just kind of try and filter through and, and settle down. Um, but it was, it was really riveting, it was really stimulating because you're constantly, um, you know, there's the, the, the language, which was a kind of, you know, it's in a glamorous way of just sitting there with your 
notebook, writing kanji over and over again and memorizing it. Um, but then being able to read books about history and books about literature, books about, I mean, I was never that strong with the, the political side of things, but, you know, we, we touched on all of these different dimensions and, um, yeah, it was, it was quite thrilling. So if you found yourself hitting a wall with one task, you could find something else to do. And was it really the, the language then as well that, that kept you kind of um, more and more interested in, and then going on to like pursue uh, like an, um, a postgraduate degree as well? Or was there like kind of a shift of your interest and um, how, how you also saw the language itself? I mean, I think during our studies, we more and more realize as well that the language is kind of like the, the instrument that you need for all these other branches of, of the study, really. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, we were, I was talking to the students yesterday about the progression from year to year, because on the one hand, we will talk in, in open days about the fact that about 75-80% of the time in the first year is, is given over to, and classroom time is given to language teaching, um, with the other 20-25% being what we broadly call content, whether it's history, literature, um, society. I think sometimes I've fallen into the trap of talking about it that in the second year then it's a kind of 50-50 and and then it, you know, so that the balance, the kind of balance tips the other way as you move through um, the, the degree program. But actually that might be true in terms of the amount of time in the class or how your how your timetable is structured. But really what you're trying to do is get to the point by fourth year of writing of using the language to understand the content and go deeper with the content, right? And kind of using Japanese resources for Japanese studies dissertation. And so I think probably it was an, a bit of gaining confidence through learning about the literature and other things. And I mean, I loved English literature GCSE and I was really torn when I went down the mathematical route at A-level, whether I should go into English literature and then thought that doing a maths degree, my father was an engineer, so I thought if I did a maths degree, it would lead to something like a job that he would understand as a job. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, we can get on to that. Um, but um, I think that the, so, so there was a passion for literature already. And that was certainly kind of reignited through my studies. And then being able to read Japanese literary texts in Japanese was incredibly liberating you know I, I like writers who are experimental with language and if you're spending a lot of time trying to master this complex language that feels very different and finding myself getting frustrated to read writers who were playing with that language playing with the materiality of it through um text kind of kana and kanji um and also playing with kind of you know uh, the fact that I don't know it was a, a word could mean the same uh, the same two different words I mean umpteen different words pronounced the same but lots of different meanings um, was was just really exciting and I, I kind of I found I found my feet a little bit with that and then thought right um, and then of course it filters into how you start seeing the world yourself right because you start or at least for me I felt that you know and I was in my year on my year abroad and speaking in Japanese my idea it would kind of inform how I was presenting myself partly because sometimes you I would be limited to say you know, describe myself in the way that my my the, the grammar and vocabulary that I knew forced me to do this was a bit of kind of role play almost 
um, when when you're first out there. But um, yeah, so it's those these two kind of things: that immersing myself in the language and then finding that the language was opening me up to different ways of thinking. So you mentioned your year abroad there. Um, mm. That's probably for people who are thinking about applying for Japanese studies, uh, pursuing kind of that that career. That's probably one of the most exciting things about potentially doing a Japanese studies degree mm. and for me that's one of the great selling points of doing any language degree I, I suppose is um the opportunity to go abroad and actually you know, live and breathe the language and, and the cultures how was your experience of your year abroad where did you go you know how did it shape you as a as kind of a Japanese studies person so my year abroad was actually I, I only went in March of the academic year so for various reasons, Cambridge with being collegiate system didn't, well, it's very difficult to set up exchange programs because the exchange programs would have to be with individual college. And there are more colleges than there are students coming in to study Japanese on a year by year basis. And I was the only person in my college studying Japanese studies. So you wouldn't have an exchange to set up for one person if there isn't going to be another student coming through straight after. Um, I must say at this point that the year abroad that the students that we have now the options that are available to them uh coronavirus pandemics notwithstanding are phenomenal um and so it's a very different time this is this was a a, a kind of a, an anomaly i will say but i went in march to okinawa um and the reason for this is that my uh classmates were all going to hokudai so that's in Sapporo. But I, in my, I took a gap year before I went to Cambridge and spent part of that time, uh, as most people did in those days, backpacking around different places. One of the places obviously being Japan. And I'd met an Okinawan uh, woman in my hometown, just completely by accident or kind of at random through a friend of a friend of a friend. And she said, oh, if you come to Japan, you must come and visit me in Okinawa. And I have to confess, I had no idea. Okinawa. <laughs> I think I thought she meant Osaka, <laughs> uh, which is very embarrassing to admit. I hope I've made up for that mistake by now. And so she invited me to visit her. And I flew from Newcastle via Brussels to Narita. Her friend picked me up from Narita, took me straight to Canada. That was interesting because I didn't have a word of Japanese, he didn't have a word of English, but he insisted on staying with me for the full seven hours that I had to transit. So that was transfer. So that was, it was very kind, but it's quite awkward by the end of it. And flew straight down to Naha. Um, and that next morning, well, I can tell you all about that, that I'm probably digressing, but the next day I, I was 19 years old, so they dressed me up in a red kimono and took me around all sorts of places in Okinawa for a photo shoot for my Sage Nishiki, for my coming of age ceremony. I still have the photographic evidence of this. I look miserable in all of the photographs. I was so jet lagged. It was so hot <laughs> rainy season. And I just felt really, really ugh. I wanted to just go home and have some toast. <laughs> um, and then they took me to their military. Uh, the, they took me to a viewpoint where you could look over Kadena Air Base, which is the biggest air base of the Pacific uh, by the American uh, um, so I didn't know what was happening and I spent a week with this family who were very generous in sharing with me all sorts of you know knowledge and cultural 
everything about Okinawa history, um, performing um, the Okusanshin, which is the, you know, the Okinawan uh, variant and uh, predecessor of the Shamisen, um, Okinawan dance, um, all sorts of things. And then I went to from back from back to Tokyo and just thought, this is somehow different. And I suppose I couldn't therefore, I'm still, you know, I was so stimulated by what is so different with Okinawa. And um, so I basically came back and expressed an interest to work on Okinawa for my dissertation in some form. I didn't know what I was going to do. And when the year abroad wasn't so rigidly fixed, or at least they, you know, there was, I was going to be sent to Hokkaido, which was the absolute opposite end of the country. My director of studies and my supervisor approached me and said, look, we know that you're really interested in Okinawa, would you like to go? But you'll have to sort it out for yourself. So luckily my friends out there helped me uh, and I managed to find an introduction to uh, a professor of Okinawan literature, Makahoro Masamori. And I sent a very tentative email in English to his email address and by absolute miraculous fortune, a then PhD student by the name of Kyle Ikeda, who's now published by his professor at Vermont, picked up my email and in, in, on Black Order Sensei's behalf, allowed me to join his Demi. So I spent my kind of about five months in the University of Lucas uh, with Black Order Sensei. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a probably a, a very um, dif uh, different kind of experience of like um, not only Japan. But also, I, I would I would assume of of of, of Japanese culture is particular, um, because uh, myself I did my a year abroad in Tokyo, and I think uh, just from from knowing uh, a couple of students at my university who were from Okinawa, and what they were saying is it, it is a completely not only if if you look at it from the, from nature and 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 from the history as well and was that something that kind of also um, impacted you on, on the way how you viewed Japan uh, in, in general? So, so not only like from a, from a cultural aspect, but maybe even from, from, from like a political historical um, background. I mean, it's, it's diff I would assume a very different experience situated in, in, in Okinawa, even if it would have been, for example, Hokkaido, Probably, yeah. No, I, I, th I mean, I think that's definitely right. I mean, obviously, just just by the sheer, you know, the climate. Those <laughs> when I first landed and then went back to Tokyo, it it felt very different. But in the, and I mean, the surroundings, the architecture, and everything like that. But but it was really the impact of looking at the bases and having my host family talk to me at length about the war. Um, and this, like, you know, their experiences, um, the their stories of you know losing however whichever members of their family and friends and the devastation that was wrought upon their communities, um, and the the way in which they continue to carry that, and I do in, in in all senses. So as a as a real sense of kind of, um, I suppose honouring that memory, and and not not always in. You know, the bottom line is it's beautiful in Okinawa. I mean, you know, I I can't quite feel comfortable just doing a resort hotel kind of holiday down there. Um, 
But I, you know, it'd be very churlish of me to say to ignore the fact in, in talking about memory and trauma and war and, and occupation, all of these things that I'm saying, well, it's, you know, it is beautiful. Um, and the food's great. And, you know, everybody who I met there was really generous, but there was a real desire from those people and a real generosity, I think, from the people that I was staying with to share their experiences. And, and, and that was something that I just, that stayed with me. It, it's a really difficult thing to talk about what makes Okinawa different because it, it, I'm very reluctant to fetishize it. And, you know, it, how do we, when we talk about, and I start, I'll, I'll teach Okinawan literature this term. I mean, we'll talk about what, you know, how helpful is it to think about Okinawan literature as a genre or as a category. Um, and there's the, the Okinawan problem, which is, of course, the ongoing bases uh, and presence of military bases. And at the same time, there's the problem of articulating that Okinawan difference. Um, yeah, in a way, you are um, more, yeah, you're encountering history and, and very recent history and um, more directly in, in an environment or in, yeah, in a, in a, in a, in a space like um, Okinawa, as in, for example, um, um, cities like Tokyo or, or, or even Osaka, because you, you don't really have that yeah, reminding presence of, of, of the war, for example, but also of, of yeah, the, the, the aftermath and what kind of, of tensions that brought along. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, I was, so it's two years since I was there. Um, I was planning on going, of course, this, this Easter or this summer, and that didn't quite happen. <laughs> but, you know, when I was there a couple of years ago, I'm talking to my friends, that we'd often, they'd often say, Okinawa today. And, you know, it's this idea that it's, and it's this kind of almost, it, my friends we were talking about it. They said they used it in a, in a kind of bittersweet way. You know, it's, it it hurts sometimes to be in Okinawa, but it, that's because they really care about it. And it's it's like kind of a a, a loved one. It's not feeling sorry for themselves. You know, I, I think this get caught gets caught up in victim narratives too quickly. But I was standing in the Sakima Art Gallery on the roof, and this is a fantastic art gallery um, where. The, the owner, Mr. Sakima, uh, he had he basically had some of the land returned to him um, that had been bought by the American on loaned by the Americans for bases. And you know, the kind of I mean, the stuff of urban legend, but people the, the story that I was told is that he his this land, he wanted his land back in order to build an art gallery. And I said, Well, the Americans will never give you your land back. And so of course he goes to the different authorities. Anyway, he then just asked up front and they said, sure. Yeah, you can have some of that land back, and and um, you know I'm sure there were all sorts of financial transactions and things going up. You know, I, I need to trace the proper story, but he then reclaimed some of this land, built his art gallery, and it now contains lots of art that is very politically motivated against war, against occupation. So I mean, it's a, it's a fantastically kind of subversive move. And there is no real car park, although that's not that rare in Okinawa. There's way more cars than there's ever space to put them. And you have to park your car as close up to the fence, which is the dividing border to the military base as you possibly can. So it's all, and I found that kind of subversive as well. And you know, this war, this 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 art um, in these galleries is really, you know, quite. Some of it was really quite evocative and, and quite moving. And I then got to the top and there's a viewing 
um, platform on the top of the roof. And we were standing there and suddenly you can just hear aircraft. And out of nowhere, you know, out of the clouds, this um, Osprey military aircraft comes in. The Osprey is this kind of twin rotor helicopter. So it takes off like an airplane. And then the rotors on both sides pivot up. But it's actually very dangerous. And there's been a lot of protests against these being brought into Okinawa because these, this kind of rotor, as it's moving, can jam. And there's a lot of accidents that have happened. And they're not very safe, um, potentially. Um, and it just... It was so, I, I, I find myself just really standing there thinking, gosh, it almost feels as if the war just is still happening because you just, out of nowhere, you hear a military aircraft going across. And of course, you're driving at the um, Route 58 and there are signs for, signs to be careful of wild war that could run out, but also signs where the stray bullets. And you think, how on earth do you, how on earth do you, do you avoid a stray bullet if you're driving at 60 kilometers an hour down the, down the dual carriage road? So there's a, just a, a sense of something happening. Or, um, and, and, you know, one of those trips I then heard, there are um, a kind of boom and they were testing, testing bombs or something. Um, and you, it's, it's the sounds. I, I think we talk about the kind of the data point of 25% of the islands are covered in military bases. And that's one thing that we, you lose sight of in, in focusing on surface area is three-dimensionality of it, the fact that it's sound as well. Once I've been there and felt it, I, I can't quite let that go. Is that then kind of like also a reason why like the experiences and like kind of getting to know Japan from, from this side that is probably not really something that uh, a lot of like presents to the, like the, the majority of people who uh, get in touch with Japan in one way or the other, um, then something that then uh, motivated you to to take your studies further and then do an uh, MA? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that there's a there's a there's a sense of unfinished business, and I and you know I was now I can feel I was you know I was proud of my dissertation as an undergraduate, but you know given the chance to do any piece of work again, I probably would take it, and so just wanted to keep pushing. Um, I just felt that I'd got so far with language, I'd got so far with understanding things, but really the four years of the undergraduate degree was the, was the, was the opening into something rather than a, a job done. And so, yeah, so I, I, I wanted to do the uh, MA and it was actually an MA in Japanese cultural studies that I did. And I wasn't really sure then either what cultural studies was and or were and how that differed from the Japanese studies that degree that I already had. Um, so that was really kind of powerful as well in terms of thinking the diff through the differences between area studies and cultural studies. Um, we didn't necessarily need a huge amount of theory um, as an undergraduate, or at least I didn't. So there were lots of ways in which that Japanese cultural studies MA really further kind of um, took root in me and seeing the object of study especially when it is a region or potentially a community or a language or whatever it might be in different ways. Um, making connections with Japan and Japanese literature to other literatures and all of those kinds of things. And on a more practical level, um, did you get to the point where you thought, oh, I'm, I'm coming towards the end of my undergraduate studies. I want to, I kind of have this idea that I want to pursue postgraduate studies. Let's go out and, and look about and, and see what's out there. Or did sort of someone push you down that route? Did you have like a, 
maybe a supervisor or anyone who said, are, are you interested in, in going on to postgraduate studies? How did you sort of, um, yeah, kind of make that transition? Yeah, um, my friend often reminds me, and I, ha I have no memory of this, but apparently on my very first day in Cambridge, I, in the kind of induction session where we all introduced ourselves and, you know, presumably were asked what we wanted to get out of the Japanese studies degree, I apparently said that I wanted to do a PhD. Now, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know what inspired me to say this. And I, I kind of suspect, I, I just, I'm not quite sure if I can believe my friend that I said this, but I, was, I always wanted to be a teacher. And I think I knew once I'd made the transition or kind of focused my attentions on doing a degree like Japanese studies, that if I was going to teach, it would involve, that would, well, that would require a PhD and an academic career in a university. It wasn't the kind of thing I was going to be teaching in a high school or a middle school. So I suppose, again, the seed was, you know, the idea was all, always there, even if I hadn't necessarily been aware of it. But my, on the day of my results, my, uh, my undergraduate degree results, my uh, supervisor, uh, Dr. Mark Morris, contacted me and said, you know, I think that you would have potential to go on and do further study. Happy to talk about it with you if, you, if you're interested. Um, so I, I went to see him. And he said, look, there's, there's no funding opportunities in Cambridge at the moment. I'd be very happy to supervise you. But I think also it can be really beneficial for you to go to different institutions and meet, you know, kind of see other supervisors or whatever. So, um, so he uh, gave me a few people to get in touch with. And I then met with Dr. Nicola Miskitten, who was down in Birkbeck. And um, yeah, we sat talking for about three hours. She was incredibly kind um, and I kind of knew then that that was a, a great way to go. And she was telling me about this Japanese cultural studies MA that she had designed, and it just sounded fascinating to me. So that was the practical kind of line of path in, I guess. And so you then spent some years as a research student in Waseda as well? I did. I did. I uh, got a Mombashore sort of as well as the uh, next scholarship and went to Waseda. And that was thanks to Katsukapa Sensei, who had, they just instituted a, so it's an Institute of uh, Ryukyu and Okinawan Studies in Waseda University. I met her, so I went to Japan for about six months after I graduated from Cambridge um, and spent six months, as I say, there, randomly in a room next door to, in Seiko University, living next door to Mike Molaski, who had published on Okinawan literature and his translated works of Okinawan literature. And I was sat there writing my MA proposal with the Okinawa Zenshu, the collected anthology, which has got a really distinctive cover. And this, this man who'd moved into the room next door to me um, walked past and kind of did a double take and said, why are you reading that? And so I've, I've, I've published you know, an anthology of Okinawan literature in translation. Which is southern exposure, which I should say as well, what really helped me with the Okinawan thing is that that was published, I think, in 2002. And that was, so it was really fortuitous because at the time when I was thinking about what should I write a dissertation on um, and I was interested in Okinawa, lo and behold, there was the first anthology of Okinawan literature and English translation published. So there's a lot of serendipity in this um, story. But um, yeah, so I, I um, that was, that was pretty much. Um, it, the six months. So, so he introduced me to Pascal Spencer, that's what I was doing. And um, then I kept contact with her and she welcomed me to Wakata, which was great. So what did your um, your post as a research student at Wakata actually involve? What did you do 
in your time there and, and how did it kind of develop you as a, a, a Japanese studies scholar? So I was there initially for two years um, and I think the the greatest part of that was to actually be involved in research groups and attending seminars and lectures on Japanese and Okinawan literature, Okinawan studies, but by scholars who were themselves Japanese and Okinawan and using you know those languages, you know, Japanese writing and publishing in Japanese, um, rather than just being you know in a in an institution like Cambridge looking on at these places from afar. But I actually then, after 18 months, dropped out of Montreal. And when I was given a, I, I got a post position as a research associate in the Academic Writing Centre, uh, which was great. It allowed me to stay in, as ambassador for then three and a half years. But the realities of working, although it was just a research associate post, it became very long hours. It was almost entirely in Japanese. So it's fantastic for improving my ability to rattle off emails in Japanese. and my comfort in using the language just morning, noon and night, but it wasn't conducive to pushing ahead with research and writing. So I made the decision to come back to the UK to do my PhD at that point. And did you um, uh, thought about the idea of, um, because you have been, had at that time had been in, in Japan for quite a while and at a very well-known uh, institution as well, to maybe uh, do your PhD in, in Japan at a Japanese university or even return to Okinawa or? Um... It crossed my mind. <laughs> um, and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if I was able to write a thesis in Japanese or if I was going to be able to, and just stay in Japan, right? And, and be surrounded by all of these magnificent scholars and, and, and great friends that I've met, made over the, over the years. But I think ultimately, well, I, I mean, I suppose, you know, there was, there was the hard kind of opinion at the time that a, a, a PhD from English institution in America would, would hold more kind of currency for the job market in the future, potentially. More importantly than that, my dad is becoming older and he wasn't always the most robust in health. And I thought that if I, I realised, I kind of checked in with myself and realised that if I don't go back to the UK now, I may never go back. Mm. And so I decided to return. And after being like quite a, a time away from from the UK and also from like the academic circuit, um, mm -hmm. um, how how did you stay up to date with, for example, funding opportunities? Because one thing that we, I don't know, when you are doing a master's and then toying with the idea of then going on maybe doing a PhD, the advice that you get from a lot of um, PhD students or, or young academics is that always kind of make sure that you have funding um, for a project like that because like kind of like this this duality of then always like having to do full-time work and and then financing yourself um, is, is is very exhausting and, and might not um, be suited for everyone so how, how did you manage to still stay in in contact with kind of the academic circuit or, or or did you not and how did you find out um what the technicalities with a return to the UK are I I mean I, so I, I, I stayed in contact with with Nicola and Birkbeck throughout the whole time and I actually did enroll on the PhD part-time with her but then left to go to Waseda within six months and as I say once I started working there which was great because it prolonged the, the funding um uh, you know, it was a source of income. It was also very exhausting. And I realized that to be doing 
attempting to do a PhD part-time long distance is not really conducive to achieving a PhD at all. So I was in constant contact with Nicola, who was, um, had her ENT ground, and the situation in Birkbeck had changed, and she was moving away from that institution. So she helped push point me in the right direction for various other things that might come up. Um, and she put me in touch with my PhD supervisor in Leeds. And it was fortuitous at the time that, um, so that was Dr. Irene Peter. And um, when it was really uh, fortuitous at the time that Japan Forum, um, the journal of the British Association for Japanese Studies was setting up or moving its uh, editorial committee to a, a, a kind of collaborative team based within Sheffield and Leeds. And they were offering a Japan Forum studentship. And that was, you know, a three-year PhD studentship and would allow the PA or kind of the PhD student would then be, uh, take on the role of managing editor at Japan Forum. So um, luckily there was that opportunity, but there, there weren't a huge number of opportunities at the time. And I was very lucky that that kind of those factors all came together at the right time for me. And um, when, or one of the the, the biggest kind of um, questions then is when when you've decided, okay, I want to want to continue my journey and, and and do a PhD. How did you kind of um, decided what your project should entail? How then also did you decide who to be supervised? Because I think a, a lot of the times when you make these decisions, then you're influenced obviously by certain like geographical things as well, or like f family can influence you. But what was kind of your thought process when 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 choosing your your topic for your PhD? What were what were the things that you found more the, the most yeah important for you when making these decisions? I think I, you know, I knew that I always wanted to work on Okinawa and well, Okinawan writing or writing from Okinawa. I mean, the, the terminology here is so fraught, no matter which way to kind of summarize it. But I didn't want to just look at Okinawa because I thought that that would also, I mean, first of all, there were some fantastic works of scholarship on Okinawan literature, which you know, I knew that I wasn't going to get anywhere near if I, I couldn't just do a, a bad version of something that's already been fantastically influential on my on my studies and my research. Um, but I also wanted to look at the writing from that I was look at the writers that I was interested in apart from these categories. And you know, I was looking at a writer, my undergraduate dissertation and my MA dissertation called Saki Amatami, and she, her writing doesn't necessarily fit quite neatly within what this kind of prepackaged idea of Okinawan literature, if such a thing is to exist, would necessarily be. So I wanted to know how to talk about her work without being reduced to this label of not just Okinawan writer, but Okinawan female writer, Okinawan woman writer. Um, and when I was in Waseda before, so, well, on both occasions really, but when I, when I was in Waseda um, as a Montreal student, people would say, oh, well, if you're interested in Sakinama, you should read other Okinawan women writers. I don't, I don't want to, I, I want to, I mean, it's not, I don't want to read their stuff. I, I read it and I enjoy it. But from a critical point of inquiry, I, I'm trying to move away from that. And again, Nicola, my uh, MA supervisor was fantastic because she 
we had very similar tastes in literature and so she would pass books to me when I do my MA with her and that's how I came to know about BMG, that's how I came to know about Tawada and you know, I, was, I was really kind of struck when I was reading these texts of not quite, I mean, deja vu, but some kind of resonances or commonalities that were appearing through these texts, but then also very aware that, particularly in Japan, when I was talking to teachers and, and friends and, and, and kind of classmates in Japan about these three writers and their works, they said, mm, yeah, but they're, they're very different. I was like, but, yeah, but these sentences, these structures, these uses of language, there's something resonant between them. and. So it just became a, a, a task of how do I articulate those commonalities as I saw them without reducing the, you know, the very important perspective differences between them, especially when these writing, these writers in their text speaking up in favor of retaining that sense of difference and not kind of just collapsing boundaries. And so it was, it started off in those, in that kind of area. Um, and in terms of then finding a place to go, I mean, it, it was really probably, in, it was led by the knowledge that of, of a good supervisor, um, who was going to read my, you know, his work I liked uh, a lot, and who, who I was, knew was going to be kind of really good at giving me constructive feedback. Um, I had a secondary supervisor who was in the um, performing and visual arts and cultures department in Leeds, who was very um, involved in theory, who did his PhD um, under, so um, in Paris and was um, Sir Eric Prenowitz and you know I was kind of taken by the whole theory thing with Japanese cultural studies and so I was that also was really good I, I was really excited by having Eric on board as well because it was then forcing me to try and talk about these um, Japanese work works of Japanese literature to an audience who wasn't within Japanese studies which is also I think important for me. You've, you've mentioned that you um, always had this interest in literature and then your folk your yeah your, your focus was on, uh, on on Japanese or Okinawan literature however you um as, as like a, a a lot of students who who start their journeys in Japanese studies you you have maybe did you ever come across that you were lacking kind of a skill set from a literature point of view from a like an analytical point of view not necessarily from um, what is maybe um, rooted in like language or these kind of problems, but more of like as, as a discipline, did you find that kind of um, giving or giving you a hard time in in opening kind of your research up to a non-Japanese studies audience than in, in, during your PhD time? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think kind of trying to learn these skills is an ongoing process, um, no matter what stage you are you're standing at, but. I found myself a lot, especially in my masters, looking at literary scholarship from other fields. So other, you know, not just Japanese literary scholarship. Of course, there's a lot of really fantastic scholarship within Japanese literary studies as well. But I was just trying to read as widely as possible across all sorts of different things and think about the questions that were arising with respect to other, other literatures, I guess. And to what extent did they, could, could you ask the same questions within Japanese studies? And of course, it's, it's completely you know, obvious that you can, but there are certain maybe um, factors 
with respect to Japanese kind of modern history and, and its own image of itself, with, you know, Japanese literature's own perception of itself as well, and, and how that how Japanese literature is transmitted, but also perhaps created in in in, in translated canon as well. So those kinds of questions were I, I would try to kind of work out what other scholars were, were doing um, and try and learn from, from that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the other thing to say in, in, is that within area studies, you know, there's a, we are, you know, with, I'm, I'm very much within an area studies field, but I'm, I'm really struck by my colleagues in Cambridge, you know, that everyone's doing the, doing the real thing. It's not, it's not literature light, it's not history light. And so, it, you know, it, it, but it's rooted in the language again. And so, yeah, it's important to check in with all of these different skills. But I, I think that it's, it's very possible to, to do that. We just have to make sure that the message gets out. So you come to the end of your PhD, you're now officially Dr. Young. Mm. You take the first steps out into the real world, as it yes. were. Um, what was your next step and, and why? I mean, the next step, so the day after my viva, I started working as an interpreter at the Nissan factory in Washington outside of Sunderland as a, a translator slash interpreter um, helping engineers to make car batteries for the LEAF. Um, and that's literally the day after my Bible, I was on the floor at the factory floor at 7.30 a.m. So that was fun. I, in the time since between submitting my uh, dissertation, in fact, for some of the end of my PhD years, I was doing a tiny bit of teaching in Newcastle University. Um, and that's where I'm from Northumberland, as I said. So I was living in Newcastle, um, and uh, thanks to Gitta Hansen up at Newcastle, I was able to do a little bit of work there. And through uh, another colleague at Newcastle, um, you know, the factory at Nissan was there and they would be sometimes looking for um, interpreters for a fixed period of time. And they needed somebody. And I think that they were a little bit nervous because the majority of those who do that translating work they have one in-house translator, at least in the battery plant, but so they're normally kind of short fixed term contracts. It's normally when they have a um, group of people, uh, engineers and technicians, managers from Japan coming uh, to perhaps do modifications within the factory. And this is one of those times. So kind of, you want to make bigger batteries that all of the things, machines and robots within the factory have to be adapted and modified to make bigger batteries. Yeah, I think also most of the interpreters who then were, would be brought in were native Japanese speakers who were now resident in the UK. I think they were a bit nervous about some kind of English PhD <laughs> student, not a native speaker of Japanese. I was very nervous as to how on earth this was going to fly, um, especially with all the technical vocab compared with my, you know, my knowledge of vocab is mainly through reading literature and literary criticism so yeah it, was a, it felt like a bit of an experiment but they were fantastic and I was supposed to be there I think for six weeks and I was pretty much there for nine months and then I taught a full semester at Newcastle when um, Gitta went on, on leave so then we became a teaching fellow there and it was at that time that I applied for a Cambridge position and started there in October. 
So you still had like your eyes on on, on teaching throughout the the whole like the, the start of your undergrad up until the end, or or I was that something so. that? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I did, and I suppose when I was in when I was at Nissan, it was such a change of pace, and especially from having completed the PhD. Um, I remember not long after I submitted the PhD, just being in a supermarket, thinking, "What have I forgotten? Have I I've lost something?" And looking around me, thinking, "Have I dropped my keys? Have I put my bag down somewhere?" And then it dawned on me, I just wasn't carrying. PhD around with me anymore because <laughs> that writing up period it was it you know dominated all of my thinking and and so to then go from that setup to a translating job which we were working long hours and and the conditions in the battery plant were not pleasant we were because it's lithium battery acid is flammable in contact with water so to go into the actual factory, you'd have to gown up with, you know, we all know about wearing masks now, but mask, a hood, full body suit, gloves, um, steel toe cap shoes. It's very noisy in there because the machine's whirring all the time. And it's also, there's a special kind of, it's like very intense air conditioning to suck all the moisture out of the air. So it was quite kind of grueling. I and, mean, you know, be there at 7.15 in the morning, sometimes there till 5, 6 o'clock at night. But you left and that was your job done. Mm. You know, you could actually, people had hobbies and, you know, they weren't, <laughs> and, and, you know, other things to go on. You could go and not feel guilty in the way that I kind of had by the end of my PhD. I mean, I loved, you know, I loved my research and things, but, and I thought, wow, what's this about? This is a totally different way of living, living life. But then, so then um, I sent off the application to Cambridge and I was also contacted by Hitachi or somebody headhunting for Hitachi looking for Japanese translators in the area for the high-speed rail project that they were going to be developing. I was really torn because I wasn't really sure what my prospects would be. And yet, yet going into the academic job market was really tough. Um, I was pretty burned out after my PhD and wasn't sure, you know, thought, well, maybe, maybe this has come along with a reason and for, with, for a reason at this time. And as a way to, to think things differently and, and think about where I'm going differently. So I had an interview with Hitachi set up, but I think what pulled me back, I actually called them on the morning and said, actually, I'm not going to come. By that point, I'd been shortlisted for the Cambridge position, which I didn't in my wildest dreams think I would be successful at, but I thought that it was a message that, or a sign that there was potentially somewhere to go in this academic world. I also then thought of all of the you know, emotional and financial investment of parents, uh, emotional investment of supervisors. Of course, you know, everything that I've been working on, I couldn't just then stop doing the academic thing. It was, I suppose it had got, it was too much in my, in my sense of who I was. So, um, yeah, I, I, I had my, I had my out. I can't complain about stopping. <laughs> That's, I guess, brings us up to, just about where you are now then. Um, Cambridge. Um, so to kind of maybe stop and, and look back and kind of widen things up a bit, how do you feel that the, the field of Japanese studies has, has changed and evolved um, sort of from, from that first moment that you, you know, you turned up on your first day uh, as an undergraduate at Cambridge to, um, 
where you are now do you feel like the, the field has evolved and changed a lot and, and do you think the experience of, of starting out on the journey of Japanese studies uh, for someone today would be very different mm. from, from where you were when you began? I, I think so but I think that that's not just within Japanese studies I think academia has changed a great deal um, I suppose you know my image of becoming an academic was being able to you always kind of hide behind the bookcase and just you know pursue <laughs> research and and yes be engaged with researchers and scholars and, and being productive and all of these things but also you know just being quite bookish and that being all enough and of course I probably didn't look into it enough at that point I was probably naive in my perception of what academia was but I think also it has a great deal has changed you know not least with social media and of course the world's very different now so what what it means to study languages I mean languages are so in decline in this country right and what it means to to be pursuing the, the, the perception the public perception of an academic is also changing I think um, or certainly seems to have changed in the past couple of years so those kinds of things are probably applicable to to many fields I I also think you know what I didn't read manga. In fact, I still can't. It's probably a terrible confession. I, I, I don't quite know how to read manga very well. But, you know, that wasn't really the big thing. And certainly not to, it was certainly not as kind of omnipresent as it is now in terms of what, you know, students all the time when I'm doing admissions interviews, they talk about manga. Um, so I guess in those ways as well, the kind of the, the ways in which, or the, the dimensions of, and, and, and disciplines within this kind of messy area studies of Japanese studies. It's got different branches now. <laughs> yeah, I can um, very much uh, relate to that because um, I'm not really uh, like an avid manga reader myself. And that's, that's still like, I think even though um, it is a little bit changing when people are thinking about Japanese studies or like their perception of Japanese studies is that we mainly have like, like an interest in manga and, and anime and like the pop culture side of things. And I think um, just uh, from, from observing and going through my own certain like stages within academia, I think that has, is kind of in a change changing thing as well or at least that's how I, I really uh, experience it like that you especially when you then go on to the postgraduate and then then the PhD that um, th that changes but I think um, that is probably one of the the, the stereotypes that the, the discipline still has kind of and regardless if it, whether it's in the uh, in the UK context I, I did my undergrad in Germany and we kind of had the same perceptions of, of what Japanese studies is. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I wish I could. It's not that I am dismissive of manga any at all. I just, I don't have the skill set that is required. I just get so lost in the pictures and then, oh, I, you know, I lose all narrative momentum and it just takes me too long. But, but I mean, I suppose the other side, that the thing that hasn't changed, um, maybe not, is that, you know, we still see, you know, travelogue kind of documentaries and, and whatever on TV of, you know, XY celebrity or whoever going off to Japan and commenting on how unique it is and how it's between East and West and traditional modern and things. And so the, the, the kind of media or public perception of what Japan is, I think still seems very 
similar now. You know, I'm seeing the same narrative in those kinds of programs today as I was 10 years ago. So I think that some of the challenges that we face within Japanese studies remain the same in terms of how we, you know, what kind of image of Japan we're supporting, challenging, subverting, etc. And so to ask perhaps one of the most cliched questions, what advice would you give yourself on that first day of, of uh, undergraduate studies, um, knowing all that you know now about your journey through Japanese studies? I mean, I, I probably, if I would tell that precocious person who said, I want to get a PhD off right away, <laughs> even though I managed to do one. But um, I think that I would, it's really obvious to me now in a way that wasn't obvious to me at the time that the nature of all of these things changes. So the nature of the academic profession changes, the nature of the field changes. If I had known that sooner, I, it's not that I haven't tried to embrace it along the way, but maybe just be less surprised or, and, and kind of be able to, to roll with that a little easier at times. And I mean, certainly kind of what we're facing right now is a whole other challenge and spin that I just, you know, we can make some guesses maybe as to where it's going, but we will wait and see and have to reflect in another year or another five years as to the impact that everything that's happening right now is going to have on university degrees, academia, all of these different angles. And um, just um, following that, um, do you, where do you see kind of if there is any kind of opportunity from uh, the situation we are currently in, I mean, it's a very in, involuntary uh, situation, it's not by choice, but where do you see kind of the opportunities rather than the challenges and, and how academia um, and the situation academia is right now and, and, and kind of the post-COVID, COVID mm -hmm. type of um, world? And I think that the, you know, I taught my first class today, well, it's more like a seminar. I have four students. We met in person um, in a very deserted faculty building. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was really lovely to see them. Um, and, you know, it was just so, so nice after a lot of two-dimensional interactions, right, just to see human beings. The, the challenges, I think, are real. I mean, as, as scholars, we're unable to get to Japan um, in an hour, and there's only so much that you can do with online book ordering and scanning and things like that. You know, talking about Okinawa, the whole experience being not just the looking at the surface area on a map, but where the bases are, but hearing planes fly overhead. And I think, you know, that experience, experience is, is lost in what we're, we're doing. And I just wonder how that will shape the scholarship that results. You know, if this, depending on how long-term this is. I suppose in terms of possibilities though, you know, Cambridge has had specifically has had a, a very kind of fixed examination process, and this has provided the opportunity and the momentum to change certain ways in which we're thinking through not just the you know intricacies of how you use Zoom, but the technology. So not just the technological aspects, but the pedagogical aspects of what we do, and making sure that the assessments are actually kind of the most pedagogically sound and rigorous and kind of rational for, for the, the skills that we're cultivating. I suppose as well, you know, although our nearest and dearest feel very far away, if we can't go around to see them, 
scholars and friends all around the world have suddenly become one button click away to call. And so there's a lot more in terms of dialogue and webinars and things like that, which I think is also very potentially very fruitful until we get a little bit tired. And I do think that there is something about the these, you know, you go to conferences and, and while these scholars scholarly papers that you see and hear are, are you know fantastic and the opportunity to present them is also fantastic. There's also a lot of a kind of business talk in the, the cafe or the bar at the dinner mm. table afterwards. And it's going to take a while until we can find ways to really I think it's impossible to replicate that at the moment. Well, I think we've probably covered all the main things that we wanted to cover then. Um, is there anything that you, any points that you still wanted to make about anything we've spoken about today or any, any topics that we haven't covered? None that immediately spring to mind. They'll probably all come to me as soon as we stop talking. But um, it's, it's, it's really great that you're doing this. And I'm sure that, you know, I'm not sure how helpful my rambling kind of meandering memories uh, are but I you know I had no idea that I would be able to forge a career in academia and I still kind of pinch myself sometimes and I remember when I turned up for my interview in Cambridge I thought my gosh you know I've been here before a, a while ago it, it felt very surreal and it still can feel very surreal one of my students yesterday was has been on her year abroad and she said you know I was here for two years and I've only been away you know she's been away a year and a half and it feels so strange to be back and of course they've come to Japan for a year and come back and almost to a different country because of the pandemic but I think that I'd like to say that if you stick to your guns there should be a way I mean I don't want to go you know but I hope I'd like to think that there is room for for this field to continue to grow and develop and hope that you know exactly as the, the title of your podcast says kind of new voices will speak up and 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 take kind of steer the course through these difficult times um, the way through i think um so far with uh, the interviews that we had with um uh, dr mumanov but also dr Coates, is 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 just there are so many different like paths it, with it into the fields and um and so many different um like routes to take to kind of end end up in a in a in a lectureship in some sorts or be, being then able to um to teach and uh, uh, at a university in the UK um that I think that is fascinating because I think probably academia is one of those yeah job markets or one of the only job markets that really provide you with that that from any kind of like situation or any kind of background you can still get to a similar point I mean it's just yeah sometimes a little bit of luck um right timing but most of the time you can see that from there is no one one golden path to um to to make a career in it and the, although that can be quite intimidating especially when you are at the very beginning of it i think that's quite reassuring to know that there is no right for everyone in it's a way it's incredibly tough and it's incredibly you know it feels very precarious and i think you know there are many times when i stop and think gosh and and you know, I, I, I kind of mentioned very early on in our conversation about my thinking that I might become an engineer because that was a job that my dad understood um, having been one. And, you know, he, he sadly passed away in the second year of my PhD. So he didn't see where well, it actually did get me a job in the end, but he would kind of sit and say to me, you know, where's this going? You know, what what is it that you're doing? <laughs> um, 
And, you know, I was talking to undergraduates and master's students today and saying, you know, we've got to justify our position in this field, right? It just doesn't, people will say, oh, you know, it's a great dinner party conversation. What do we do? Japanese. Says, oh my gosh, that's really interesting. But this, which is obviously lovely to hear, but also it seems as if it's this kind of oddity. And, you know, I wanted to see ways in which we could kind of narrate, kind of uh, relate what, you know, I'm looking at to the, to the real world, you know, what, why does it matter? I think the pandemic's proven that that country 6,000 miles away is actually a lot closer than we think in some ways. But yeah, I, I, I like this point that you just made about the fact that there's no textbook kind of way in. I mean, there, is, there are perhaps more obvious routes, um, straightforward, but, you know, PhD takes up three, four years. It is inevitable that life also happens along mm. in that same period of time. You know, some, some great things can happen and some difficult things can happen. The thing that gets that got me through was a passion for my subject, and I think you know if you if you've got a project and for you it carries meaning, it stands to reason to expect that it will it could carry meaning for somebody else, and it's then a case of how do I express that meaning convincingly to somebody else, and that's the golden question that we were talking about before you started recording you know how do you summarize your research in a sentence or in a word or whatever it might be how are you going to grab your audience and how find yourself in the research and the research in you and, and communicate it in different ways but that's what gets you through the precarious time I think knowing that you have something to say fantastic well thank you for this chat before we go um is there any anything you'd like to um mention in terms of any upcoming publications or any talks or anything? I know obviously everything's probably a little bit crazy at the moment with COVID going on, but um, yeah, have you got anything coming up? I have an article in uh, the December issue of Japan Forum, which is for publications. So that's a, um, a, a, my reading of an essay and a short story by Saki Yamatami, the, the writer from Okinawa who I mentioned before. Um, and that's all I'm going to say, because I've got a couple of things that are under view and in development um but yes but first first things first japan for in december Brilliant. <laughs> sounds good we'll keep an eye on that yeah just thank you very much for taking time and and, and having this chat with us um yeah. especially in these like unprecedented times of, of chaos and everything can change from one minute to another yeah thank you so much um i hope uh, thank you for the invitation thank you and, and i hope that um yeah, your 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 story is gonna inspire kind of a next generation of Japanese scholars as well, and they they see what yeah also the different kind of faces that Japan has that Japan is not only Honshu, um, but um, has different kind of um, facets to it as well. And I think yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Voices in Japanese Studies podcast. We would like to thank the British Association for Japanese Studies for their continued support for our project. You can find our previous episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss out on our latest episodes. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>